This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Well, welcome back to With You in the Weeds. Um, I am Lynn Rausch. I am a licensed professional counselor, and I do this podcast with a team of pastors and therapists. But today, I have a special guest. His name is Erwin Lutzer. He has authored many books. He has pastored for 37 years at the Moody Church in Chicago. He has a radio program, Running to Win, that's heard literally all around the world and that has reached millions of people with the gospel. But most importantly, he is my dad. And he has given me the foundation for following Jesus. He has modeled that to me over the years. And I would say that he's had the most profound influence on me, probably more than anyone else. And I actually think it's because of his influence that I have inherited a love for philosophy and for understanding the human heart. And I really think that planted the seeds of me wanting to be a therapist and learn to apply a biblical understanding deep into the weeds of people's lives. So, Dad, welcome to With You in the Weeds. Lynn, it's such a privilege to be with you. And, you know, as a father, I take delight in the fact that God has led you to study, to understand human nature, and also to give a biblical solution. The thing that I appreciate about you is you actually understand the nature of sin. You understand that when people go into sin, oftentimes the deeper they are into sin, the less likely they are able to see how deeply they've gone because sin blinds. Sin, of course, leads us into darkness and into blindness. And so you are our resident therapist, <laughs> the middle child, of course. It's just an absolute pleasure for me to be with you today. So, Dad, when I thought about what topic I wanted to cover with you, I thought that together, because this is a big task, that together we could try and tackle the topic of narcissism. Because several years ago, you preached a sermon on narcissism, and you, ref you referenced a paper that I had written on this topic, and your media people have told you that it is the number one sermon that people request when they write into your program. Is that right? Well, you know, we have many different requests that come in, but I remember very clearly that when this series of messages was on the air, my staff said, yes, we are asked for the message entitled, How to Become an Impossible Person. And that's the message in which I quoted you, where I talked about narcissism. And, you know, since we've introduced the topic of narcissism, perhaps it would be helpful for our audience to understand where the word comes from. According to Greek mythology, a boy by the name of Narcissus looked into a pond 
He saw his own image, fell in love with it, and there are some parts of the story that say that then he jumped in and drowned. So when we talk about narcissism, we are talking about an excessive self-love. Mm-hmm. We're talking about those for whom nothing else matters except themselves. So that's where this discussion is going. Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, narcissism is definitely trending right now. Um, in fact, when I was out Christmas shopping, I actually came across a bar of soap called Narcissist. And of course, I had to buy it, right? Um, but guess what? It smells really good, which is probably not a big surprise, right? Um, but as Christians who have studied the Bible and read the Bible, we know that the roots of narcissism go all the way back to the beginning and have been around for a long time. Um, but before we dive into this topic, I want to share a few verses that will guide our treatment of this issue from the book of Philippians. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11 says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And I want to say this at the outset because this truly is the spirit in which we share this knowledge and insight with you because we want to learn how to love and serve others with real knowledge and all discernment. But that is going to require us to move from just looking at people from the external view and sort of just what they say and what's on the surface to the internal view of, you know, who people actually are. And we need spiritual, emotional, and psychological intelligence to do this. And so we want to approach this with humility, with compassion. Um, You know, I was reminded of another verse from Psalm 130, verse 3, which says, If you, Lord kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? In other words, when it comes to assessing the human condition, we are all in the same boat. None of us is without fault. We all equally need God's grace to rescue us from our condition. You know, Lynn, when we talk about narcissism, we have to go right back to the Garden of Eden. Because you remember what Satan promised to Adam and Eve— He said, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And ever since that time, man has always wanted to take the place of God. So you're absolutely right. When it comes to narcissism, we should think of a spectrum. It's a continuum because all of us have some narcissism in our hearts. Today, we're talking about some of the more obvious forms of the narcissistic person. But at the same time, We always have to be evaluating ourselves. Remember what the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, you referenced the fact that narcissism is trending today, and that certainly is true. It can certainly take place in a church. Mm -hmm. You know, as a pastor— I've understood that throughout history, there's been narcissists. Of course, we have them today. I want to give an illustration of one man who I think was a narcissist, a pastor. He would walk into the room and he would see everyone else as competition. Hmm. So what he did is he would flatter us, tell us how wonderful we were, 
with the intention that we would flatter him back. Mm. Now, in his case, he was a very obvious narcissist. I always like to say that there are some people who have to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. <laughs> In other words, they always right. have to be the center of yes. attention. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's true of all of us. That sometimes mm-hmm. has been true of me. Mm-hmm. But the narcissism that we're talking about today has many different layers. Right. It has manipulation. It has the devaluing of others. Yes. It has control. Mm-hmm. All of these, this cluster of evil mm-hmm. surrounds the narcissist personality. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're talking about today, not necessarily that clinical diagnosis as much as we're looking at a cluster of traits that can describe someone on a spectrum. So let's jump into our discussion here because what we're going to try and answer in this episode is, first of all, what are the roots of narcissism? Secondly, we're going to talk about what are the five traits of a narcissistic personality. And then lastly, we're going to look at what are the five stages of bonding with a narcissistic person in relationship and what does that look like? And so just to make it easier throughout this episode, we may refer to someone with narcissistic traits as an NP, which just stands for a narcissistic person. So just be aware of that. But dad, I want you to take us back to the beginning. You mentioned the book of Genesis and Adam and Eve and what happened in the Garden of Eden. And I think that this biblical narrative is so helpful in shaping our understanding of the human heart. So take us back to what happened there and where do we find the roots of narcissism there? Well, when you stop to think of it, sin always splits people. It separates them. So if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you discover that Adam and Eve, of course, they severed their relationship with God, their friendship with God. They also separated themselves from one another. They are now going to see one another in oppositional terms. But also, sin does something else, and maybe that's what we're getting at today is it actually separates us within. That is to say, Mm -hmm. there's such a thing as the false self, Mm -hmm. there's such a thing as the real self, and that's why it is that what you discover, and we're going to be getting into this, how people live actually in two different worlds. And today, we're going to talk about that inner world, Mm -hmm. who the person really is. And sin certainly has messed all of us up. <laughs> yeah, and I would agree. So so here God creates us in his image, and he creates us to be known and to be loved. But when we talk about the self, and you're getting into that internal fragmentation, I think it's important that we distinguish that there are two ways of thinking about the self. Because from a biblical perspective, we most often think of the self as the flesh or something that's bad you know, we've turned away from God's love, we've rebelled against him, we can have these wayward desires, and so we have a negative view of self. But I think there's also a self that I would refer to as the image of God's self that's unique, that has inherent value, that isn't, quote, bad, and that gives each person dignity, identity, and worth. And so we want people to have a sense of self-worth. That's why we love and nurture our children. We want them to feel seen and safe and loved. And so I think that this is an important distinction to make, don't you think? I really do. 
As a matter of fact, when you stop to think of it, I remember the days when the great emphasis was on self-esteem. Mm -hmm. Everybody was into self-esteem. But as one man said, my son-in-law went for counseling and they gave him so much self-esteem that nobody could live with him. <laughs> so you have yeah. self-esteem, but there is that sense of self-perception mm -hmm. where you recognize that you are created in the image of God. You are valuable. You are gifted. I think the book of Romans puts some perspective on this when the apostle Paul says that no person should think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think soberly as God has gifted him. So we want people to have a right perspective of themselves, and that is a perspective of the fact that they are valued persons before God and before others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that that's a great differentiation, I think, to make here. And, you know, earlier you mentioned the word splitting and that that happened in the Garden of Eden. And, and we do have an enemy of our souls, the great splitter, um, who wants to divide us and separate us from God and from each other. But tell me a little bit more about how splitting plays a role when it comes to the narcissistic personality. Well, let me just put it this way. There are many people who live their lives in two compartments. On the one hand, in church, he may be a Sunday school teacher. He may be a valued person, a valued member of a committee, mm -hmm. much loved and admired. But at home, he might be something entirely different. And certainly in his heart, he's entirely different. He could be abusive. He could be controlling. He could be manipulating. All of those things happen in private. But let's remember when we talk about the narcissistic personality, it is not sufficient for him to be good. In fact, he has no interest in being good, but he has a great deal of interest in appearing mm -hmm. to be good. Mm -hmm. Appearances are everything, and he will maintain that image meticulously when in point of fact, inside, he is rotting, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, people can live in two different worlds. It's that appearance of what they want people to see, and then there's the world that actually maybe exists behind closed doors, kind of like a Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde. And I think this is where things really start to get real as we pull back the layers and we begin to really understand how the power of self-deception, which we are all susceptible to, it should really sober us. It should really give us great pause. Um, so you addressed the spiritual root of narcissism, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3. But I would say that, you know, from a psychological perspective, that the psychological roots of narcissism are what you touched on about splitting. And that is usually where somewhere in childhood, this person did not have the proper nurturing or secure attachment that they needed from their caregiver. And so maybe they experienced abandonment. Maybe they were severely shamed or criticized or abused. They didn't have a strong emotional connection with a parent. And as a result of that, they can remain somewhat stuck in the mode of a child that's really unable to tolerate distress or relinquish control. And so what happens is psychologically along the way, they learn to employ lots of defense mechanisms to cover up 
these feelings. That's kind of that splitting piece. And I would say it's true for all of us that most of our responses or reactions in life do stem from a desire to self-protect. We all want to buffer ourselves from reality, to avoid dealing with reality. Uh, We want to insulate ourselves from unpleasant things um, that are true about us. But there's another possible root of narcissism that I want to mention, and that can stem from parents who perhaps spoil a child, tell them that they are more special, more important, more talented than everyone else, kind of indulge their every desire, and they grow up believing that they deserve special treatment, and this essentially creates an entitled adult who has a very inflated view of themselves. But You know, these are the roots of narcissism, but Dad, I want you to tell us what are the two primary objectives of a narcissistic person? First of all, I want to comment on what you just said. You know, those who have a grandiose idea of who they are. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I ever told you about the guy in a psych ward who said, I am Napoleon. And the person next to him said, who told you that you were Napoleon? He said, God told me I was Napoleon. And the other guy said, no, I didn't. <laughs> but now back to your question. Yeah. Narcissists process all information through two questions. Mm-hmm. How does this make me look? And how does this make me feel? Wow. Yeah. And everything has to be filtered through that. So everything revolves around themselves. As I've already emphasized, They don't have to be good, but they have to appear good. Mm -hmm. And to them, everything is a threat unless it contributes to their narcissistic desires and unless that narcissistic desire is well-fed. And so what you find is that they oftentimes are so critical of other people because remember this, they cannot tolerate competition that makes them look bad. And we're going to be getting into that in just a moment. Mm-hmm. What they have to do, therefore, is to tear others down with the hope that in tearing them down, they build themselves up, especially when it comes to their own field or their own area of expertise. Mm-hmm. If somebody outshines them, that person has to be criticized and devalued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And so as we talk about this subject, we let's keep those two objectives in mind, that the driving force of an NP is pulled through the filter of those two questions. First, how does this make me look? And secondly, how does this make me feel? We'll be right back in a jiffy, but we want to take a quick pause to say thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. If you like what you're hearing, think about texting this episode to a friend. And find us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. Now I want us to look at five common traits of a narcissistic person. And Dad, why don't you go ahead and jump in with the first one here? The first one is simply this a narcissist lacks compassion for others. And you know, Lynn. I think one of the best biblical examples of narcissism is Cain. Yeah. Cain kills his brother and then walks away feeling sorry for himself and saying, oh, somebody's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. Well, Cain, are we supposed to cry for you? 
Mm-hmm. You killed your brother. Right. So a narcissist feels their own hurt very, very deeply. They're very sensitive, but they have no compassion for the people that they have hurt. And there are people who will stab you in the back, leave you lying in a ditch, walk away thinking to themselves that they've actually been kind to you and you deserved a lot worse. (laughs) That is the narcissistic personality. Now, let's just think about Cain for a moment. He is jealous because his brother is accepted before God and he isn't. He's counseled by God. Lynn, I have to ask you a question because I know that you have counseled many people in the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Have you ever counseled someone and they have not taken your advice? Many times. Many times. You know, as a senior pastor, there were people at Moody Church who wanted me to counsel them. Now, I generally try to tell them that my staff was actually better at counseling than I was, but they wanted the senior pastor to counsel them. Now, let's consider Cain. Cain was counseled by God. Mm. God came to Cain and said, you know, if you do well, you'll also be accepted. Cain walked away from God's counsel and killed his brother. Mm -hmm. So, as you have frequently said, and you and I have had these discussions, of course, because you are my daughter and we talk about these things, and I love the way you have put it, you cannot fix people who do not want to be fixed. Mm. And Cain did not want to be fixed, Mm -hmm. and he walked away from God's counsel. Yeah. Well, that does make me feel a little bit better as a counselor that (laughs) if somebody's rejected God's counsel, then uh, I guess I'm in good company. So, well, that's good. Yeah. So the first trait um, is that this person lacks empathy and compassion for others. And I would say that the second trait that we would often find is that this person needs a lot of validation and affirmation from others. So, There's a lot of approval seeking. They need a lot of reassurance from others. And in that sense, um, I would say that the people in the NP's life could be described as narcissistic supply. And so this means that the people around them kind of exist just to supply them with what they want. People are seen as objects that are there to serve a function. And if you don't supply what they want, then the NP responds in one of two ways. They either cut you off and they end the relationship, or they increasingly seek to tear you down or to destroy you. And you can never quite please them. That's the, that's the maddening thing about this. No matter how hard you try, all the energy that you're using to make them happy and to you know, get them to give you the love and the, the compassion that you desire— there's usually some sort of criticism that's going to come back your way, um, and they're going to turn things back on you. And if you don't meet their needs, then you kind of have hell to pay. So so that would be the second trait that we're looking for. Um, what's the third trait that we're looking for, Dad? Well, the third trait is simply this, that they take no responsibility for their actions. Let's go back to Cain, okay? Mm-hmm. God says to him, where is your brother? And he asks, am I my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. In other words, he doesn't say, well, I murdered my brother. Oh, no. He begins to ask God a question because he does not want to face reality. And, you know, if I might use this illustration, perhaps you've heard it before, but the story goes that a man was in a bar 
And after he had had a few drinks, some of his friends took some very rotten, terrible-smelling cheese, and they rubbed it on his beard and on his mustache. And when that man left that evening, he walked into the clear night air and said, the whole world stinks. (laughs) (laughs) And you and I have met people like Mm -hmm. that because they do not see themselves as part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is a part of the problem but they take no responsibility for what they have done. Yeah. Yes, that that is for sure true. Um, Yeah, so the next one that I would say, you know, traits that you might find in a narcissistic personality are that this person feels that they're superior to other people, that they know more than other people, or that they're right all the time. And, And this is someone who is, you know, egocentric. Maybe they have that grandiose self image. Um, but because they're so intent on controlling their image to the world, everything is varnished. You know, they they put out, they portray what they want you to see. And I would say that social media has enhanced this, you know, times a million because now you have filters, now you have curated content, now you can tweak and edit and you can put the very best version of yourself out there. And that is, um, you know, I think fueling some of this trending narcissism. But they can also be charming. They can be, you know, very intelligent, maybe very good verbally. These are skills that they have learned over the years because these are ways that they have learned to, um, you know, make themselves look good to other people. They can be very persuasive to an audience. Um, They're quick to be able to establish rapport with people and build their trust. And here's something that I've recognized, and that is that when someone like this starts to pay attention to you, it feels exhilarating. It's like this thrilling experience when someone, you know, turns their attention towards you. It can be intoxicating, but yet we have to come to recognize that this might be their false self that they're putting out there. And this is a bait that maybe we should not take. You know, Lynn, I was going to talk about this later, but since you mentioned the charmer, somebody like that oftentimes draws women, for example, if he's a man, and they become interested because, as you mentioned, it gives them a feeling of value and exhilaration. But actually, the charmer is doing that so that he can gain information from them. He is building them up, and eventually he will tear them down. He will devalue them. Mm-hmm. Because once again, if they are not giving him everything that he wants, he's going to go after them and they'll discover that this charmer actually turns out to be a narcissist. He could turn out to be an abuser. But let's get to the next point. To the narcissist, facts don't matter. The only truth that they are interested in is their own truth, their own version of reality. I have to ask you this question, Lynn. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, every year they have a special word. They call it the word of the year. What was the word of the year for 2022? I have no idea. Gaslighting. Oh, wow. You and, I know, that, yeah, you and I know that gaslighting goes back to an old movie mm-hmm. in which a woman complained because the lights in her London apartment used to be dimmed and her husband convinced her that they were not dimmed, that it was all in her mind. Mm -hmm. So what the gaslighter wants to do is to change a person's view of reality. 
The dictionary defines it as the art or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for one's own advantage. Narcissists do not fight fair. So now that we've painted this picture, which I think is difficult for us to wrap our minds around, I want to walk people through the cycle of how a relationship with an NP develops, because this is an observable, repeatable pattern of behavior that we can identify. And I want people to be able to be discerning and have their senses trained, as Scripture says, to be on alert for this. And because I like alliteration, uh, these five stages of bonding in a narcissistic relationship all start with the letter D. So the first one is um, the NP decides on a target, and they declare their love and affection for this person. And this is where they show copious amounts of love and attention. They've singled you out. They're showering you with praise and affirmation, telling you you're the only one. And uh, maybe they even pick someone who they can sense is vulnerable to this because this other person lacks a strong sense of self, and they feel that they're going to be able to easily manipulate them. So I think that's stage one. Um, Stage two is where the NP begins what I would call the devaluing stage. And this is where they become, you know, previously they're, they're showering praise and affection, and now they become very critical of the other person, maybe subtly at first, maybe um, they start commenting on their appearance or the way they dress, but now it changes. And so now nothing the other person does is right. You're absolutely correct, Lynn. What a wonderful description you've given. It's a horrible description in one way, but it's an accurate description. And you know, Jonathan Edwards says that when we get to heaven, We are going to rejoice in the success of others, and if they are exalted above us, we will rejoice in their exaltation as if it were their own. The narcissist cannot rejoice in the success of others. Yes, they have to devalue the other person to make themselves feel better. And so the third stage is um, they employ defense mechanisms. And so let's say the other person tries to confront them tell them that they're hurting them or that they don't like the way they're being treated. This is when all those defense mechanisms come into play, like denial or projection. They project onto others. I would say it this way, that the truly evil person sees the evil that is in him as belonging to others. Mm, Yeah, so they project what's inside of them onto other people. And I think another way of saying this is that they scapegoat. So all the negative feelings, all the blame, anything that's wrong in the relationship is scapegoated onto the other person. You know, this is all your fault. If only you hadn't said or done this, then I could love you. And in this way, they're they're really kind of holding the other person emotionally hostage. And it's a really painful experience. So then you go into the fourth stage of this relationship, and this is where it creates dissonance. It's destabilizing. You don't know what's up. You don't know what's down. You feel like maybe you're going crazy. I remember a man who was married to a narcissist, and he would ask himself, who did I marry? Was it the wonderful woman who looked after all of our visitors so well and prepared such a lovely meal for them? Is that the one I married? Or is the woman that I married the one who, after the visitors left— 
turned angry, defensive, controlling, and unable to please. And one other thing about the narcissist, you can never please them because the goalposts are constantly mm-hmm. moving. Yes, and I would agree. And that what you've described is is that dissonance because you live in fear. You you feel like you're walking on eggshells because things are unpredictable because, you know, one way they're sweet and loving and then the next um, moment they're angry and critical. So then the last stage essentially is that this person really tries to destroy the other person's sense of self to get their own needs met and maintain control. And it truly is an annihilation of another person's God-given identity, their image of God's self, and this is a form of emotional abuse. But what makes this so tricky, and this is what's so hard, is that this isn't seen with human eyes. There's no fingerprint, there's no weapon, there's often no physical bruises or, or physical evidence, and yet it is extremely damaging, very painful. It wreaks havoc in relationships, in businesses, in churches, in marriages, with children. It really can be this hidden secret behind closed doors that's doing so much damage. As we bring this to a close, Lynn, I want us to turn to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Because in the Bible, what we have is an accurate diagnosis of the human condition, but also, of course, we have grace, forgiveness, and change. Psalm 139, David begins by saying, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You get to verse 23. By the way, in those verses in between there, he talks about how God knows everything about him, every single detail. One day a man said to me, there were closets in my mind that I thought not even God was able to enter. Mm. But of course, Mm -hmm. God enters into all the closets of the mind. But anyway, verse 1, thou hast searched me and known me. Verse 23, search me, O God. Is that a contradiction? No. What David is saying is, O God, in the first instance, you know me, you see me thoroughly. Now show me what Mm -hmm. you see. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the path everlasting. It is so critical that we understand that honesty before God is the beginning of healing. Absolutely. And this is a prayer that you and I should always pray. I Mm -hmm. prayed it this morning. And then, of course, we go to the foot of the cross, and we know that in Jesus Christ, there is acceptance, there is forgiveness, and there is also hope. I want to say in our next podcast, we're going to be talking about more answers for people who live with narcissists, Mm -hmm. and we're going to try to help them once again. But for today, let us all pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, search me, O God. That's where the help begins. Yes, Dad, thank you so much for covering these topics with me today. I think our listeners are really going to benefit from this. And we encourage you to listen into part two, where we're going to talk about how do you manage these difficult relationships and how do you protect yourself when you need to do so. So thank you so much for being with us today. Dad, great to have you in the studio today. Thank you, Lynn. My privilege. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. 
We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.